We believe you have a story to share. For 2,000 years, humankind has believed in the power of story. In healthcare, we're finding ways to better heal those who are in front of us. Join us as we explore healing stories now. Welcome again to another edition of Healing Stories podcast, and it's my great honor to introduce our guest today, Scott Shea. Scott is the author of In Good Faith and also has a a really wonderful and uh, I would say a servant leader uh, career within the banking industry. And Scott, I just want to thank you for taking the time with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Martin. Thank you for having me. Uh, as we do on all of our podcasts and beginning to introduce ourselves, Scott, would you tell us who you are to the audience? Well, um, I grew up uh, in Chicago. I'm the uh, first, um, I'm the son of, um, uh, of my father, who was a Holocaust survivor, and uh, my mother was a first generation. American, um, and I'm the first person on either side of the family to ever go to college, um, and grew up in a East Rogers Park, for those of you who know, it's sort of a, at the time it was a lower middle class working area of the city, uh, and, uh, you know, had an experience where, um, uh, everybody was sort of, uh, equal. It was, it was actually a unique neighborhood, um. And once I went to college, I went on to Northwestern, and then I went to business school. And then through a confluence of events, I ended up on Wall Street and ended up, through a long story, co-founding a bank with two other gentlemen in New York um, in May of 2001, which we built into Signature Bank and have made it a, you know, a very successful bank for middle market privately owned companies here in the New York area and in parts of the rest of the country. Uh, that is quite a story and, and one I'm sure as we unpack uh, uh, this time, uh, opportunity for healing. And one of the things that I wanted to start off with is, and I, I don't hold this against uh, you as a Cubs fan and a Cleveland Indians fan, um, <laughs> but I did actually spend some time on Kenmore Avenue I, uh, in Rogers Park for about four or five years. So we share some of that. It's a beautiful part of the world. Well, we shared, we definitely share that. And, um, you know, I have a somewhat unlikely story in many regards, and that uh, even though I'm a banker, a finance person, I've written one book on the American Jewish community and then another book that's uh, been pretty widely embraced on God. So um, I'm. Uh, I, 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 I haven't, I, I haven't gone the straight path myself. Yeah. You know, uh, and I wanted to kind of start there. The uh, aspect of in good faith, uh, and for those uh, who have not picked it up, I, I highly recommend it, uh, really goes through a chronicle of your own story. And one of the parts that I find most fascinating, uh, among others, is the story of your dad and uh, around the miracles. And we know it, this is uh, one of our first guests uh, who comes from the Jewish faith, that miracles are often a place that people have some trouble. And you really tackle this. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about beginning with that, with miracles, and even starting with your father uh, in telling that story. Yes, I, I actually, my whole faith journey began in trying to understand where my father was coming from when it came to God. So my father, my father made sure that we belonged to a synagogue. Um, 
But I always found it interesting that he and some of his other survivor friends never actually seemed to be praying. They'd sort of, during prayers, be chatting with each other. During the rabbi's sermon, they'd, they'd doze off. They'd go back at various points in the service to the kiddush. It's what we call a collation. Maybe they'd have a schnapps together. Um, but they always wanted to make sure that their sons were and daughters were bar and bar mitzvah, that it was important to them that we were part of the Jewish community. But there wasn't a lot of communication with God going on. And it's, it was something that really, really, really bedeviled me for a long time. My father belonged to something called the Jewish Lithuanian Club, um, which was had a, had, a, had a group of survivors. And I, 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 if we have time, I'll tell that story. But what I learned about my father is that he was certain there was a God. There was no doubt. There was no doubt on any side because he had, at just somewhat after his bar mitzvah, he and his family had been taken out in Stekasna, Lithuania, surrounded by the local Lithuanians, um, uh, and uh, the uh, Nazis had, uh, had had amassed all the Jews, congregated them. My father's father, my grandfather, was murdered in front, almost in front of him. And um, he never left Svexen, he was, he was murdered right there. And my father, though, was searching for his father, going back and forth between the lines that were formed. And a Nazi guard threw my father into the second line, not the first line. But it turned out that had my father stayed in the first line uh, that he was put in, he would have been murdered too. Had he found his father, he would have been murdered. Um, had the Nazi guard um, uh, done what most Nazi guards done at the time, which is just, you know, uh, shoot first, um, he would have not made it out of Svexner. And he ended up being in a variety of work slave labor camps, first in Svetlana uh, labor camp. And, and he made it through a couple of other concentration camps. He was ultimately liberated in Dachau by the American forces. And he was 60 pounds when he was liberated. He was probably days from death. And he was so fortunate he was liberated by the American army, who knew enough at that point, because they had encountered other concentration camp victims, to figure out how to heal them back. Because the concentration camp victims who were initially given food right away almost all perished um, because their bodies couldn't handle food, regular food initially. So my father was healed back to health over a year. And if you hear and ever heard, my father has passed away, but his story, if, 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 if the slightest trivial thing had been different in his past, my father would have been dead. Mm. There were so many times that he barely escaped death that sitting here in our comfy lives in the United States and you know in, in our in our great privileged society whatever our situation it's hard to imagine how many times my father could have been would, would have been dead and so my father was very certain that there was the hand of God that got him from Svexel, Lithuania, to Chicago, Illinois, to remarrying, to having a son, 
um, to sitting in show, to sitting in synagogue, show we call synagogue uh, in Yiddish, and um, and the like. But he and some of his friends were really angry at God. Mm-hmm. So that's why he wasn't praying. It took me a long time mm-hmm. to figure that out. Yeah. He was giving God the silent treatment. Right. I mean, why had his father been murdered, his brother's been murdered, his uncle's been murdered? I'm my closest relative on my father's side is a second cousin once removed. Mm-hmm. That's my closest relative. Yeah. Everybody was wiped out. And so my father knew that he was saved by miracles, and he knew he had a purpose in life. But... He wasn't going to talk to God, and I always felt, and it took me a while to, to, to figure this out, but I, I felt like God on, God got it too. He understood why he was getting the silent treatment. Yeah. I mean, what a, what a powerful way to consider that relational aspect of reality with God rather than some, and I think you do such a wonderful job, of the method of questioning. And you're asking too what I think so many of us ask is, well, once I have pain in my life, what do I do with it? And, and one thing that you explore that I think is very helpful in helping people to heal is just, do I become a hateful person? And it seems to me that you and your your dad and, and how you create this understanding of the story, that wasn't what happened. And it, do you have any sense of why? Um, because you explore in the book that, you know, hatred, it comes out of people's own pain. And that, I think, is a tremendous insight for us to consider today, too. Well, one thing I learned from my father, who was a, you know, just such a great man, I mean, I, I, I pale in, in, in comparison to him, is he, 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 he gave me lessons that were caught rather than taught. Hmm. So we're going back, you know, many years ago to the, and if you were in the Chicago, you know, the old West Side. Yep. It was a pretty bad area. Mm-hmm. Um, there were people who were, um, you know, now they're called homeless. At the time, they were called bums. They were either drug dependent or alcoholic dependent. They were living on the streets. My father would sometimes bring someone home, huh. and he would take a coat out of his own, out of his closet, an old coat, you know, one that he was going to retire. Um, we weren't very, we didn't grow up as a, a wealthy family. My father was a carpenter and then became a carpenter contractor. But, you know, we, we were living, uh, you know, we, we had we had a house at, over our head. We had an apartment over our head, not a house, we rented an apartment. And he would, he would, and I remember being a, a young child and almost being, really almost scared of these people who were coming into our house from time to time. Hmm. But my father really, really got the golden rule, which is... You know, do unto others as you want them to do unto you, or the way Hillel put it, um, our great Jewish sage, don't do what is hateful. Don't do unto someone else what would be hateful unto you. You know, don't pass something by who has a need. Because I think he caught me, He, he I, and that's a lesson I've caught. And my father, it didn't matter whether you were literally Christian, Muslim, Jew, uh, whatever you were, as long as you were a human being, he, he definitely had the view that you were, which is a view that I, I talk about in the, in, the, in, the, in the book quite a bit. It's the first lesson of the Torah, the first lesson of the Bible, which is we're all created with a divine spark. And we all have to, we all have to, 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 to recognize that golden rule. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if we do that, we can transform the whole world. It's within our power to transform the whole world.
This aspect of what what is within you is so striking, Scott, because uh, you're uh, a person who helps people with a method of not turning a gaze. I've heard you use this phrase before, and it seems that that really came out of your dad's method of how he treats those who are most on the margins. And, And I'm not knowing this, but it seems that way of recognizing another is I'm just, I'm not, you know, by the grace of God go I, maybe we lose that over time and that creates kind of this consternation within us um, that we can't see the other person as equal. Yes, it's we can't avert our gaze because it's so easy to turn aside. I, I mean, the Bible shows that so many times, you know, had, had when Moses, who was a, a prince of Egypt, and when he saw the Egyptian taskmaster beating the Israelite, it would have been so easy for him to avert his gaze. I mean, and who could have blamed him? Mm. You know, he just had to walk on, and he could have continued his cozy life. I mean, when you look in, in, in the previous story, the way he was, uh, the, the, the way that he ended up being saved, you remember the two Egyptian, um, mm-hmm. the two Egyptian, um, Midwives yeah. who were ordered by Pharaoh to kill the Israelite, to, to kill all the Israelite baby boys. It would have been so easy just to follow the rules. And and Pharaoh's daughter, as as Moses was floating by, here you know in those days, and even today, by the way, you know daughters of uh, and sons and daughters of royalty are not uh, immune from being murdered by the monarch, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it would have been so easy for Pharaoh's daughter just to turn aside and let that cradle float down the river. They, and this is something I learned from my father, I've learned from the Bible, I think it's a key lesson, in, at least in the Jewish faith, is you can't avert your gaze because it's at those moments of those moments of profound intimacy that you can make literally epic life changing decisions. Mm. And that's what the midwives did, that's what Pharaoh's daughter did, that's what Moses did. And we have the chance to do that too. It's it's in those those intimate moments actually become epic encounters. And you never know when it's gonna be. It, it never and isn't it interesting and I've seen uh, how you have described this within the movements culturally when we think of story the hashtag me too movement has a great parallel within this context of, of a narrative and uh, could you talk a little bit about just how you have seen uh, the ability to gaze on maybe some of those who uh, really need a sense of justice and a voice and I, I've seen it as you do uh, some of your social the investing the way that you bail people out of uh, some of the prison to give them you know some some money before so these pack places of injustice are very uh, interesting to me from your own story and the movements that we're trying to see really come back to these essential questions that are within your book well Martin first of all thank you you clearly have done your due diligence on me so <laughs> I, I appreciate that there's a, there's a lot to unpack there I mean well here's the place to start and I think it's a key point in my book and it does relate to the hashtag me too movement because I've I've actually talked to a number of groups about this and it's amazing sometimes when I do like, I actually literally see people's eyes open, Um, which is 
the, the central point of the Bible, what did the Bible actually come to do? The Bible came to overturn idolatry. It came to overturn what was going on in Egypt. And people generally think idolatry, the exodus, it's all about, you know, bowing down to idols, these statues, and it's, um, and we defeated the God King Pharaoh 3,300 years ago. But the reality is that idolatry, and the Bible, if you read the stories, uh, you'll find that, you'll find what I say is consistent with every single story where idolatry is confronted. Idolatry is something more insidious. Idolatry is a set of lies about power. It's about ascribing super authority or superpowers to finite beings like people, ideologies, or natural processes, or in the past, animals, not so much today. So that means that if you follow the God King Pharaoh, well, in his liter in the literature before the Exodus, the God King Pharaoh defeated his enemies by summoning dragons that breathed um, fire out of their out of their noses. So the, the, the God King Pharaoh could do whatever the God King wanted, and you as a subject had to follow him because of first of all, you, he was the purveyor of the only truth. And he was, and, and the God Kings did that through poetry, through pageantry, through parades, through the temple cults, and of course, very strong armies. And we think we've defeated idolatry, but the whole 20th century was a catalog of God King idols Stalin, Pol Pot, Hitler, of course, the Kim family, the Assad family, Saddam Hussein. You can throw in a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of folks who created their own truths, who, if you defeated them, if someone tried to step up against Stalin, they would either be murdered on the spot, sent to the gulag, or um, have terrible things happen to their families. So that's how Pharaoh could get away with throwing the Israelite boys into the mouth. That's how Stalin could starve a quarter of the Ukraine, send tens of millions to the gulag, and kill all the kulaks. And that's how Mao got 30 million people to march to their death. And that's how Hitler told the Germans that the Jews were vermin, they were insects to be crushed, that they were dangerous, they were infectious insects. Um, and yet, we see that on a macro on a macro level, and people say, oh, well, we've overcome that now in the second, you know, in the 21st century. But the reality is people get away with that sort of thing in a micro level, too. So how did Charlie Rose and hmm. Harvey Weinstein and a whole host of others, Eric Schneiderman and, uh, and Matt Lauer, a whole host of others, get away with abusing people while well, they set themselves up as idols. So they were unquestioned in their organizations and unquestionable. What they said was truth. And if you tried to act up against them, well, you didn't get sent to the gulag, thank God. But your careers would be over. Hmm. Um, you would certainly not be believed. And... Um, and, and, and there was tremendous risk 
to speaking up. You know, I, we talked a couple of minutes ago about the, the Egyptian midwives. So the Egyptian midwives, and this is a clear story out of the Bible and a clear parallel to the, to the Me Too movement. The, the Egyptian midwives, they knew if they just told the truth that they would have been murdered too. They came up with a story to avoid what, to avoid killing the, the Israelite um, baby boys. They couldn't say to Pharaoh, you know, it's really wrong to murder these, these, these people. They couldn't do that. So they had to stand up to power surreptitiously. And Pharaoh's daughter, by the way, knew she couldn't say, well, I saved an Israelite boy, Moses. I mean, you, you, when you're in an environment like, you know, that a Charlie Rose or a Harvey Weinstein creates, you create, it's sort of like an alternative reality of life. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and it's essentially back to the definition that the Bible gives of idolatry, which is a set of lies about power. Harvey Weinstein, of course, had that power to over people's lives and careers. When, and uh, that's what the Bible's all about, is getting us over that. And you are uh, speaking in the realm of entertainment, yet in the book, which I think does a fantastic job, it unveils the curtain around religion that is abusive and the uh, leaders who, and we know this, I mean, we have an extraordinary crisis in, in churches, uh, specifically the Roman Catholic church about what happened in regard to this idolatry. And in reading your book, it, I came to recognize that is really the crux of what needs to be healed is this sense that you yourself are removed from uh, those who are at your discretion, at, at your gaze. And, and I think that how one is able to shorten the chasm between one who has a lot of power, one who is a leader. I mean, my gosh, you're founding this bank um, and, and your ability to though still see those on the subway, on the margins, in the street, the, the poor, maybe that's really part of this newer method of healing ourselves when we do come into terms of power and, and great prestige because it, it can be so uh, enticing, I would say. There's no question that, the, 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 you know, I'm actually grateful, you, you know, for one lesson I learned just when I started out at Solomon Brothers, which is I met this trader, and I, I talk about him a little bit in the book, I don't mention a name, but I learned the dangers of self-deification, hmm. because we, unfortunately, we've had religious leaders, you know, we've had um, pedophile priests and, and, and rabbis caught red-handed, um, and we've had, unfortunately, inflammatory imams. You know, so there's no religion that is, um, and of course, Buddhists, I mean, I can go on and on. We've had no religion where even, even religious leaders, quote unquote, self-deify themselves, which is why one of the things that I raise in the book, and I think people overlook this, is the way we Jews count it. The third commandment is not to take God's name Bishop, not to take God's name in vain. And people think, well, that means you shouldn't swear using God's name. Or you should. But it means something actually much more. And I think the Jewish sources are pretty clear in this. Taking God's name in vain means setting yourself up as a sole spokesperson for God. So if I'm a priest, a rabbi, an imam who's doing something, you know, wrong or, you know, immoral, somehow I've I, I, I deified myself because I have this straight line to God. And when you set yourself up as a sole spokesperson for God, you've made yourself into an idol. And that's a cardinal sin. And interestingly, of all the ten 
of all the ten commandments of all the Yosera Dibrot in Hebrew. That's the only um, commandment that says that there is no um, there is no forgiveness hmm. because it's so dangerous, and we have to be on the lookout for religious leaders of any type who um, who self-deify because they're doing the same thing Harvey Weinstein or or or, or Charlie Rose did. You tell they, this. They, you know. Aggregating power to themselves to abuse others and abuse others' bodies. Well, and in power, you know this better than I do. Um, I had some short brief uh, beginning in in corporate finance, but you tell a story where there is an observant, uh, someone who is dressed in in a garb of of Jewish uh, orthodoxy, and you're reviewing their loan. Could you tell a little bit about that? Because I think that drives home some of your point. Yeah, that was sort of what was one of my sad. I, I, I have to tell you, I came home and I, 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 at the end of that day, I needed a drink. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, um, I, I will confess that here. Yeah, um, there was a there was a there was a loan that had gone bad, and um, uh, there was a, a person who was dressed in sort of very orthodox Jewish gar- garb, and. Um, he, he was having his deposition and during the deposition it became clear and he he said it during the deposition he stole money from the, this, this property um, he lied about it and uh, didn't report it and used the money for himself and one of the um, people who I worked with who was not Jewish said uh, you know, Mr. So and So. You know, you you present yourself as a as a religious person, and yet you've broken two of the Ten Commandments. And then he went on to give this really, uh, you know, so dispiriting, stupid, technical discussion of why he didn't really break two of the Ten Commandments. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And everybody afterward turned to me because even though I don't walk around and obviously orthodox garb um people know i'm a uh, uh you know i take my judaism very seriously people knew this this was already uh, well over a decade ago but people knew it two decades ago at this point and um and and i and i my first reaction was to in, in on behalf of the jewish people i wanted to literally climb under the table i was so embarrassed i was so frightfully embarrassed what a desecration of god's name that this person had done a desecration in Jewish people. And then I thought about it for a minute, and, 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 and this set me on an insight that I followed up for quite a while, which is, um, I said, you know, this guy's not religious. I said, he may be wearing orthodox sort of garb, but if he doesn't get the golden rule, if he doesn't get that the commandments of people with people are actually more important than people to God, he might as well go out and have a, you know, a, bacon cheeseburger. (laughs) Uh, There's nothing religious about him. Um, As a matter of fact, he's just um, an idolater in monotheistic clothing. And that really, uh, you know, was in a way for me a profound moment because I realized how often we have monotheists in in idolatrous, in idol, uh, monothe- uh, idolaters in monotheist cloth clothing, and I frankly much rather deal with a 
a, a, a ethical atheist yeah. than someone who purports to be observant, um, you know, purports to be religious. So I said, look, this guy's a ritually observant Jew, clearly, because he's doing all these things, but he's not an Orthodox Jew. He's not a religious Jew. Mm-hmm. He, must, he likes doing some rituals. Fine. But, you know, um, and, you know, my, 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 uh, certainly my, my, my strong feeling was to was to sue all the more because uh, it, it embarrassed the Jew, it embarrassed yeah. the Jewish people. Right. You you had a moment of uh, self awareness at that point as you decided the uh, lending and and uh, clearly his Sunday school got an F. Uh, you you talk about that as well. But it, in your way of developing an understanding of these arguments and 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 really being open to the questions and to this point, I I think it was Kant that said once you wake people up. They can never go back to sleep. And what I think is so important is how does one wake up, uh, wake up to the abusive spouse, wake up to the religion that is um, betraying them, uh, wake up to a bank that is fraudulent? Um, How do we help a culture? How do we help the human person to wake up? So for me, and actually this is what has changed most about me and my personal life and practice uh, uh, through the experience of thinking about the book and writing the book. For me, it's, it's all about prayer. Hmm. Because a lot of people think that they, and I've met too many, I've met, I met people on book tour and I met people when I was doing research for the book, who sort of think that a prayer is a cosmic vending machine. You know, if I get the rituals right, if I get the prayer right, I pray for this, this is, you know, this, this you know, something should happen. But really, prayer and in the Hebrew, I, I go through this in the book, it's, it's a reflexive, it's lehikpaleo, which is to mean prayer, which means to basically self-judge. And what prayer is really about is, is recognizing that you're in a dialogue with an almighty being who you can't hide from. It's like looking at yourself in super sharp, powerful light. And that light is so powerful that indeed you, you naturally, you know, cringe and, and, and can barely open your eyes. But you need to open your eyes. And, and that's where you can get at yourself truth. And the, the, the fact of the matter is, we've all, and I'll certainly speak for myself, you know, there's, there's, there's from, for at least, and I'll speak, let me just speak for myself, there's things to always cringe about. Yeah. But, I should have done better. And prayer is the only place where you can be and you have to be if you're doing prayer right, more truthful with yourself than you would be with a therapist, with a with a with a spouse, with a friend, because the Almighty is omniscient. Um, and so you can't sort of hide something away in your heart and it has to all be exposed. And once you do that then that may be along the same lines of, you know, Kantian, you know, the Kantian wakefulness or awareness, because you can't turn back from those truths once your prayer exposes them. They're, they're actually too painful to turn back from. If you're, if you have any, if you have any consciousness, um, and, 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 and again, that's why I think prayer can change the world. That's why I, I, it's so distressing to me that 
prayer has become such a marginalized part of our lives. Mm-hmm. I, I think prayer is just so, so important. I, I spend, I, I do, I, I, I definitely spend more time praying mm-hmm. than I, than I used, than I certainly did before I wrote the book and I, and it's also more difficult. Yeah. And, it, and it, it's not easy and, and it's in my day job, which uh, is in healthcare. This kind of aspect of helping people to see prayer as a method of healing and a method uh, that is more so for them to explore before they can do it with the patient is a real uh, important concept, I think, in faith-based healthcare and whatever. And you can't really uh, just measure it because it's it's a very personal thing. And I'm already struck by some physicians who come and, and say, I'm just glad to be here because I can pray with my patient. And now even in the Cleveland Clinic found other Mayo studying prayer as a way that healers need to engage that, uh, not to be scared of it scientifically. I mean, your book is scientific. And could you talk a little bit about that aspect of science and prayer uh, and some of the things that you explored too? Well, I, I'm happy to. I, 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 but even setting aside the science, and here's something that I've, I've, uh, I think I've learned or I've come to appreciate. I don't know if I can say I've learned, um, which is that Prayer, so I talked about idolatry being a set of lies about power yes. and how those power, those set of lies are are pernicious, how they harm society, how they can harm us personally because we go down the wrong tracks. But I think it's not just about, about society. I think it's also about our own psychological well-being in terms of being able to free ourselves from, from lies that we have just accepted mm. or authorities that we just accepted and to give ourselves the, the license to try to figure out truth for ourselves or whatever our own truth is. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, 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 that's, that's something that's, that's super individual. But I think by doing that, you can help the healing process. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm always struck by the story, and I, because it's one of the stories I can never get over, of my father, of my father, and how he couldn't talk to God, because the truth that he could say was just too painful and too overwhelming and too, it would engulf him. But my father always knew, I mean, look, whenever anything bad happened, my father would say, you know, if something bad happened, he'd say, you know, look, this isn't the concentration camps. I mean, he'd say, you know, you can kind of really get my father down. And I remember that at the end of his life, my father had several mini strokes. And my father was, to to his last day, my father was conversant. And... Um, you know, I mean, he didn't have, you know, his, his, his mental acuity of, 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 his, of, you know, what he was years before. But I remember the doctor telling me that they'd done a, a oh, it was an MRI or a CAT scan. And they said, the doctor said to, to, to my mother, I said, you know, we've had patients 
who have to, who present similar CAT scans to your father, brain scans, and he said they can't they can't communicate. They're they're barely vegetative, mm. and he couldn't understand that my father again he wasn't my father wasn't going to sit for the SATs at the time, <laughs> but he was he was. He was, you could have a regular conversation with him. He knew, he knew exactly what was going on. He had a political come, you know. And I think it was because my father just, his mind was so clear. Yeah. He, he had seen evil. He, he, he had seen the, the evil that the world can be. He had some truth. Um, his relationship with God was probably as honest as they say, you know, yeah. he wasn't speaking to God and God wasn't being, it was a very honest relationship. They both like knew each other. And, and I think that helped keep his mind clear. Hmm. I, 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 I can't go beyond that. And that's not scientific. No, don't, don't it, get me wrong. It's just, but it's my, it's, it's truth. It's life it's, experience. Yeah. And that life experience is, is part of the intelligence that you are continuing, I think, ask of, religion ask of atheism is coming to your truth uh, which i am so grateful for because that's a that's a question worth pursuing in life and the way that you do it is inclusive and i think uh, my own understanding of what leadership is you are really articulating um, because if leadership is one where you can't pursue your truth or you're trying to pursue someone else's truth it really won't be your own and it won't be as excellent as i think is if you're pursuing your own path I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, and, and is there anything I, I feel one of the other pieces is letting go? In your research and in the way that you've created, have you seen this as a real kind of uh, common theme of letting go? When You ask a lot of questions, but is, are there things that you have learned about the importance of letting go? Well, I've learned that part of faith, and, and the, even the Hebrew word of faith, is its trustworthiness, its faithfulness, its recognizing that there is a plan from the Almighty. We may not understand that plan. Um, I mean, when, when, when Abraham begs for, for a son, and he, 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 he uses the word, I mean, no, he uses the word faith. He he, he needs he he gets an answer from 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 God basically at one point uh, regarding Ishmael and Abraham, and he doesn't particularly like the answer, but he takes it. And Moses doesn't like the answer of not being able to enter the promised land, but he accepts it. And Eliyahu doesn't like the fact that. God doesn't agree with his assessment, but he accepts it. And there's a sense that that faith gives you of acceptance in a, in a very deep way that allows you to live your life and recognize that the answer isn't always yes from prayer or from dialogue with God, but there is a plan and there is a moral arc. And to have the opportunity to be part of making history better is is something that we've only been given because we have been endowed with the spark of godliness. And that in itself is a tremendous gift. 
So just the fact that things don't work out exactly the way we want them, being a partner with God, being part of the, being part of this, this amazing, uh, I don't want to call it a play, but being a part of this amazing reality that we have the opportunity to influence. Wow. And, 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 and just accepting that and recognizing that is, is a tremendous gift. And it allows us, I think, to sort of open our, open our hands and, 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 and be, and be accepting. Well, I appreciate that you have uh, told and, and be a witness that that spark does lie within us. And uh, I want to thank you for taking this time. Uh, I can assure anyone listening that you can get this book in a day. Uh, it's a click on Amazon. It's called In Good Faith. And if you're looking for a bank, uh, I would definitely recommend your own uh, signature. I imagine you could go on a website and find that as well, Scott, too. Thank you. I really appreciate In Good Faith. And I have to tell you, it's come out in a in a in a very popular audio audible edition. Oh, so good. A lot of people are actually liking listening to it. I'm getting a lot of a lot of good. Uh, I didn't read it. I somebody with a better voice than me uh, <laughs> read it, but uh, I'm getting a lot of good reviews on it right now. Well, well, that's wonderful. And I think one of the things that you do is you ask uh, from an interfaith perspective. You ask Cardinal Dolan. You ask uh, all these uh, kind of religious figures too to to be your dialogue partner, and that really shines in uh, your conversation today is one that has opened my heart and I'm very grateful for that, Scott. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to be with you this afternoon. Well, thank you. And, a pleasure. Uh, all, right. all good things to you. All right, take care, Scott. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Time heals all wounds. Join us for our next episode of Healing Stories. Healing Stories.